Welcome to Dead Pilot Society, a podcast that takes comedy pilots from A-list writers that were sold and developed in networks but never produced and gives them the table reads they never got a chance to have. That's it. That's the last time I'm going to say that. You restate your premise for the first six episodes, and after that, people just have to figure it out for themselves. I'm Andrew Reich, the creator and co-host of Dead Pilot Society. Thanks so much to everyone who came to see us at San San Francisco Sketchfest. And thank you to everyone who came to our sold-out show at Largo in L.A. this past Saturday. So much fun. I can't wait for you to hear all of those pilots. It is February. The pickups have happened. And last week I got the call. And it was just the studio on the phone. If you've been listening regularly, you know what that means. It's the death sentence. So I've got another two possible scripts for this podcast. But first, you have to go through the next stage of death on the way to acceptance. And that stage is, hey, maybe we can set it up somewhere else. And now, you know, this does happen sometimes. There's a show on Amazon right now called Sneaky Pete that was originally sold to CBS. Now it's on Amazon. It's extremely rare, but it happens just enough to keep writers' hopes alive. So stay tuned on that. Our script this month comes from the great Victor Fresco whose new show, Santa Clarita Diet, is now streaming on Netflix. Uh, I'm very excited for you to hear my interview with Victor because I think he has some real wisdom to impart about the network comedy development process. So here's my interview with him and then a reading of his incredibly funny dead pilot, Galaxy Fighters, which honestly I laughed out loud a few times re-listening to this. So enjoy it after this quick message. Going into a bullseye interview, I know that it's somebody who does amazing work, but it's it's an actual conversation, and you know sometimes it gets real. No, but my mother, I remember my I remember when I got <laughs> this is going to become a therapy session very quickly. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm in therapy. That was a great interview. Bullseye, creators you know, creators you need to know. Find it at maximumfun.org or wherever you get podcasts. I'm here with Victor Fresco, a writer who I'm very excited to be sitting down with, who I really admire. Some of Victor's credits, Andy Richter Controls the Universe, Better Off Ted, Life on a Stick, and the upcoming Santa Clarita Diet on Netflix, all shows that Victor has created. So thanks for being here, Victor. Thanks for having me. And we're here to talk about your pilot, Galaxy Fighters, uh, which we did at a Dead Pilot Society reading a little while back. Mm-hmm. Um, so tell us a little bit about this project, when you did it, who you did it for. So this was, I was under a deal at 20th, and this was for NBC. It was at the end of 2005, so almost 12 years ago. Uh, and it was a multi-camera, uh, and the idea was, I like kind of thinking about bigger than life areas, and this was a comic book artist, struggling kid who uh, works in a photo uh, copy store, and his uh, protagonist and antagonist from his uh, comic book come to life one day, and through a series of circumstances, end up in his apartment, and he has to try and navigate that. And it was meant to be kind of the Joseph Campbell hero journey for him, uh, where, you know, it's this ordinary world and he gets called into this big adventure. The whole hero journey, he doesn't, you know, refuses the call, crosses a threshold, and then his test is, his strength is tested against particularly this evil character. as we went through the process, it became clear that what they were looking for was Alf. <laughs> Big a show you worked on, a right? Show I worked on. Right. They didn't really, so they wanted, a, you know craziness ensuing with these big characters and how do they hide them and how does you know Matt or the you know or photocopy store guy manager how does he hide these characters and it, it just it was a typical development process where we started at point A where everyone was enthusiastic and they wanted point Z and I could only get to point K. <laughs> so by Alf they wanted it big they wanted it broader, yeah. they were sillier a yeah. little bit. They wanted it the story is a smaller story of this guy who's got a neighbor he doesn't like and he's got, you know, everyday things. He's got a girl he can't talk to. They were looking to move it into maybe and you know, there we say, not this, but 
right? <laughs> dot 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 this, uh, which is like maybe he's in a law firm or he's or you know and his parents have worked there and just a bigger, crazier. He's got a boss and just like a crazier world. And I liked because it is a crazy world where these two comic book characters come to life. So I liked it in a smaller, more real world. Is my instinct, but they wanted it in a bigger. You know, they would say higher stakes, all the networks right. it, that we're it, used to hearing. Okay. Uh, and I got, I didn't really get that close to what they wanted. <laughs> I felt like it just wasn't, what they wanted was not what I wanted. So I was young enough in my career still that I felt like I could beat them at that fight, which you generally can't. And so it's here it is now dead. <laughs> right properly dead i mean it seemed like your character your character works in a copy store he's he's sort of a he seemed like the kind of character where my experience when i've written characters like that you get to know well he seems kind of like a loser yeah right yeah. <laughs> i think that's right i think that's their instinct is uh when they said law firm like they want him to they be want him to be a winner right 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 I think that's a, that's a really good way of looking at it they didn't use those words but i think it's true, and I think it's because um, network presidents see the world through their eyes, and they consider themselves winners, so they want to see shows about people like them, whether it's conscious or subconscious, I think, and they don't like people who are not successful. <laughs> <laughs> right. There's the, there's the push-pull of how the network executives see themselves and how the comedy writers see themselves. And the comedy writers always want to write these right. characters that are sort of how we right. feel about ourselves that always end up being like, right. well, that seems like a loser, which is especially insulting because you're like, but that, that feels like me. Right. But I think it's more relatable because <laughs> most people, I think, look through the world, look at the world more as we do <laughs> than at this rarefied air of the winners who are running network television, or at least at the time were running network television. So, uh, yeah, I, kinda, I just didn't want to write that character. I never liked those characters. They, they feel like smarmy to me and opportunistic, and you know that they can. And that's what they're looking for, like somebody who is um, the captain of his universe, who's controlling the world, and then these people show up, and it throws it into a. But I immediately out of the gate. Don't gravitate to characters like that. Right. Interested in writing or watching them because if you have everything in the world, it's like who gives a crap. So, so, uh, so you said you know you were you were early earlier in your career and you felt you could fight that battle. And if you were in that situation today, getting those same notes, I would probably handle it exactly the same, <laughs> but I would be um, friendlier about it. <laughs> I think I felt, and I don't know. I still feel this way, but but um, there's I, I'm a great believer in like justice in the world, and if it's your script and your idea, and they like that idea, they should allow you to execute it how you want it, and this is how I wanted to execute it. So I sort of used to argue with them, almost like a debate, as though you could win a debate with them, and and I realized you know I should have known this years ago. You can't really because. Maybe if you're talking to them one-on-one, -on -one, but you can't. Generally, when you're talking to the network president, there's eight other people in the room, and you can't win an argument with eight other people in the room against the network president. You can kind of win uh, around the edges, but you can't win the key points. In other words, I've never been in a meeting where they'll say, you know what, you're right, don't do that. You're, you're absolutely right, you convinced me. Right. <laughs> because it's just a matter of opinion, and their opinion cannot be wrong because it's their opinion and, and it's, it's their, their money network, their money their right. network right so i would approach it like i could win this argument rather than uh just say let me think about that argument you know because i think on the other side of this is sometimes writers do get too resistant to notes and sometimes notes can be good the hard thing is to figure out which of the hundred notes you're getting, which of the 10 might be good, or five, or whatever it is, and then which of the 90 are not good, and to be able to navigate that. I think it's the one of the hardest things that we do. It's certainly the hardest thing about pilots, I think, is trying to navigate that, both internally to be able to hear suggestions that are good ones and not be so resistant to everything, which I think we get to be sometimes, uh, and to not whittle away at your script every with every set of notes so you come out with something that looks exactly like everything else on television which is also a very tough fight you know I tell 
writers. You know, if you take 10% of their notes each time you interface with them, after 10 times of interfacing, which you'll do on a pilot, your script will be 100% different right. where you started. And I've seen it, I've been around it enough, mostly thankfully on other people's projects, uh, that I've just seen pilots get destroyed, writers be completely upended and not know what their project was, what was important anymore, what should they be holding on to. Uh, As, so. With the shows that did go, that did get on the air, did get made, did get on the air, were there battles you fought on those and is, is there something where you can looking back look at, at the pilots that became dead and the pilots that lived and was there is it luck of the draw is there something about how you approach things that was that was different you know it sounds so obvious and but the lesson is never learned but the ones that were most successful were the ones that got the fewest notes i mean I, when i turned in andy richter uh, and it was a different time, different people were running Paramount, but they had maybe three line notes, and they said, uh, actually they had like three line notes, and it was Gary Hart at the time, who was a great executive, and he said, we just, we just want to send it right over, because uh, we think this is what they'll want. And we sent it to Fox, and Fox called like in a week and said, we want it, just don't fuck it up. That's our only, and, and they had no notes. But this was, you know, Tracy Katsky, who was now my, non-writing partner on this my, my current project and Gail Berman and there was a respect for writers I think or something was different back then that they didn't feel like they had to get in there and tinker with it so in Better Off Ted similarly uh, you know it was always McPherson liked that project he was at ABC at the time and uh, I got very light notes on it you know once we went to series it was a different story but uh, uh, same with Life on a Stick. I didn't get many that many notes. So I th the projects generally that have gone forward have had less notes. The more rounds I think that I get, I don't know if it's similar to other writers, the more rounds of notes I get, I think the, the more troubled it's going to be. Right, it gets diluted and it's harder to keep track of what you set out to do. It does, and I think there's something about them getting their nose back that uh, makes them respect the project less in some weird way <laughs> like that they have but the project is that squishy that it can change so many times then I feel like even they might think well we're not sure what this is now you know uh, I once heard an executive uh, candidly say to me this was over drinks they were talking about another project it wasn't one of mine and they said yeah we really fucked that one up and it was striking to me because it was like in admission, like we, the executives, took a piece of material that they liked and overnoted it and fucked it up, which they'll never tell us. But, you know, sometimes, well, this one was telling me because it wasn't my project, but uh, I figured that that must happen with, you know, quite, quite a lot, a lot of frequency that happens, I'm sure. So you have a new show that's going to be out this month um, on Netflix called Santa Clarita Diet. Do you want to tell people a little bit? Sure. Santa Clarita Diet is uh, Drew Barrymore and Tim Oliphant, and um, they play realtors in uh, Santa Clarita, and they've been together for about 25 years since high school. And uh, the Drew character wakes up one morning not feeling well, and... Um, I, Netflix is marketing it this way, so we'll know. So there's no surprise. But by the first episode, she has died and come back, and um, is a flesh-eating, undead person. Uh, and um, so, beyond the bigness of that, it's really how do we, as a uh, couple, she's she's still a functioning woman, wife, uh, realtor, mother. Um, so how do they adapt to that? They're, everything's the same except her kid has been activated in this undead way and she wants what she wants when she wants it whether it's uh, just being more active in life or you know eating people so um, they have to adapt to their new circumstances and was it uh, an idea that you took just to Netflix did you know it would land or did you pitch it to the network it was not pitched it was written on spec okay um, and uh, it was originally the first uh, 
it was always going to be a half hour, but the script was actually closer to an hour because the world was very big to define it. And then that kind of got divided up as we went forward into two separate uh, episodes. You know, I always felt like Netflix would be the perfect place for it, but I wasn't sure where it was going to go. And I um, hooked up with Tracy Katsky and Aaron Kaplan, uh, and then they took it out. went to Netflix early in the process, and Netflix was, you know, a completely different experience than uh, any place else I've ever been. They read it, they said, sure, we, we want to do it. We're not, you know, they don't order pilots, they order series. I mean, it was really in a perfect um, situation. Their only thing was uh, they wanted uh, to agree on casting, obviously, and they wanted that bef in place before they officially greenlit it. So it became, we would order this to series if we come up with the two leads that we like, we can agree, and we can get somebody that we like. And Drew and Tim uh, signed on, and then we were off and running. Actually, Tim signed on first, and we were off and running, and then we got Drew after that. And can you imagine, after this experience, would it be hard to go back to a network model? It could be. I mean, I always live with hope, uh, and so I think, and I don't know, I haven't been in a network in a couple of years, if we if they are now uh, allowing writers to have their more clear vision without a lot of input. You know, the network experience was uh, a perfect ex development experience in that there was no development. They bought the script and we basically shot the script. They didn't have, they didn't want to change it. And did that make you nervous at all, having so many years of being used to getting notes and suddenly not having them? Did you feel like you were... It does, but it was also like kid in a candy store you know I mean there were some adjustments made and I had a writing uh, you know a, a room as we went forward with it and heard it read and uh, and you know there was cutting and some rearranging but there was no development process uh, before we had our table read with our cast so I think that made it to me that just made it a cleaner better script it was more you know and it's not a perfect script and but it was had more clarity of focus I think than going through the development process which is just so broken I think the idea that you're you're doing notes on a low level for a studio and then it goes to the upper level studio and they might have completely different notes Then you're starting over again back with your I once mapped it out uh, I gave it to a uh, president of a studio once when we were in production I said just so you know from approved story area to table reading script we go through 15 rounds of notes um, which is not unusual 15 rounds because you're doing that right then your studio uh, high level then you address them, and then the low level starts over again. It was like, how did you address their studio boss notes? And then you address those, and it goes back up. Then it goes to the low level network person. They address, you know, and then it goes back to the studio again. How did you address those notes? And you're slowly going up. Then it's the next level of the network. So, and then it gets to the network president. And I'm talking about pilot process. Gets to the network president, and he has completely, he or she, completely different set of notes that nobody anticipated and nobody. Thought. And by that time, you've done 10 drafts, and you're fried, and you don't see it anymore. And it's like, well, do I want to make this a completely different project now? And you'll try to accommodate. And then that whole process starts <laughs> over again. So uh, the surprise to me is how there's any good network television, if there is, that's just that it can survive. And I think it survives, sadly, um, with just the clout of the creator showrunner. So if you're Chuck Lorre, you don't, it, it doesn't work that way. You write your script and you probably get it made. Uh, but if you're, you know, a, a mere writer, you you have to right. If you want to be in that business, you have to play those rules. So, uh, yeah, anyway, it's a really fresh, interesting, different way of working at Netflix that I think allowed it to be just a little bit more um, the script, ultimately a little more interesting. Right. Well, I'm excited that people are going to get to hear this. Uh, I feel like you know Ed Weeks and Humphrey Carr, who played your uh, two uh, graphic novel characters, were are, are just so funny. And Josh Zuckerman yeah, as Matt, it was uh, great. And I, you know, the process was so weird because usually when you, by the time you hear your script read, you've been through casting and you've heard a hundred people read it and you've picked the people that you want. And I realized when I came in that day. I'd never heard these, I knew who they were, but I'd never heard them read the material. And it would be like 
casting a show and just saying, you know, go without uh, picking these two people and let's go shoot it. But they were fantastic, as was everybody in the cast. So I was really lucky. Well, thank you so much for letting us read it. And can't wait to see Santa Clarita Diet. So thank you, Victor. Thanks All for right. being here. Thank you, Andrew. It's a pleasure. The first ever Very, Very Fun Day is coming to Tally Hall in Chicago on February 11th with media sponsorship from WBEZ 91.5. Advanced tickets are sold out, but we will have a limited number of tickets for sale at the door. So come on out for a day jam-packed with five great Max Fun podcasts, four local shows, and a comic showcase. For more information, please visit MaximumFun.org slash Very, Very Fun Day. We fade in, we're exterior of the ocean, night, we're flying, wave height over a dark, stormy ocean. A driving rain pours from the night sky. Flash, lightning splits the air, followed by the deafening clap of thunder. Suddenly a creature, a sea dragon with razor-sharp scales and glowing red eyes, pierces a wave, soars through the air, then disappears into the watery darkness. Still moving, we tilt up. In the distance, a medieval castle sits high atop the rocky cliffs of a desolate island. Behind it, something even more startling. Three moons hang in the night sky. We're definitely not on Earth. We're interior castle library, a futuristic medieval room which was once a well-appointed library. Now it is in shambles, the result of an epic battle still far from over. Locked in this life or death struggle, our Chancellor Gartold Brock, evil, methodical, yet so charismatic. <laughs> and his greatest nemesis in the universe, the eager, passionate, good and just Lieutenant Thalamus Reed, Brock is dressed in black leather armor. Reed, of course, wears white. In the center of the room sits the object of their fight, the Galaxy Transporter Device, a high-tech machine made of polished black metal and glass. As the evil Brock swings a futuristic three-pronged broadsword, Reed expertly parries it with his own menacing weapon. Reed blocks another blow, then another, and another, until finally Brock pins our hero against the transporter device. You will die, Lieutenant Reed, here, tonight. You will die and the galaxy transporter will be mine. Or not. <laughs> Reed elbows Brock in the face, breaking his hold and slipping away. Brock recovers and gives chase, catching Reed on a staircase. Brock swings his weapon viciously, backing Reed up the stairs, step by step. I will move between galaxies instantly. My enemies will have nowhere to hide. I will crush them once and for all and rule the universe. <laughs> or not. Stop saying that. <laughs> or not, or not, or not. I can't wait for you to be dead. Now, having reached the landing, Brock savagely swings his sword at Reed, who ducks just in time. Just then, a door on the landing opens and one of Reed's rebel soldiers enters, surprised to find his leader. Lieutenant Reed! Reed, momentarily distracted by the soldier, is pushed to the floor by Brock. Reed calls out to his comrade. Look out, Smithy! <laughs> Too late. Brock now has Smithy by the neck. He presses his lips against the helpless man's ears and sucks. We hear a hideous sucking sound. Smithy's lifeless body now falls to the ground. Brock smiles, some gray matter still on his lips. He delicately wipes it off. Mmm, brain. So warm and delicious. <laughs> Damn you, Brock. I swear by the moons of Hefutes, you will pay for that. Or not. <laughs> As Reed rises to challenge Brock, suddenly, strangely, we hear a phone ringing. A phone? That doesn't seem right. Brock and Reed stop and cock their heads, confused. The ringing continues. We freeze frame and pull back to reveal the interior of Matt's apartment. We have been inside the page of a graphic novel storyboard. As we pull back further, we see it as being drawn by Matt Farland, 25, boyish, the kind of guy you root for. Matt is in the living room of his small but neat one-bedroom apartment. Outside his window, it's raining hard, a thunderstorm as nasty as the one in his drawings. Matt puts down his pen and picks up the ringing phone. Hello? We split screen. Matt is talking to his friend and co-worker, Charlie, who is at work at the copy store. Standing behind the counter, Charlie's 25, easygoing, with a get-along attitude. You took the supply room key home. No, I didn't. It's not here. Well, did you look in the drawer, Berto? Um, I have it. <laughs> Matt sees the key on his desk. Retire of the castle. Reed and Brock, swords down, stand impatiently as they wait for Matt to finish his call. <laughs> Back in Matt's apartment, Matt and Charlie are where we left them. Jim Mopa says this proves why they shouldn't have made you manager. He's already calling it the key incident. <laughs> All my life I feared that one day I would be tormented by a man named Jim Mopa, and now it's finally happened. 
Seriously? No, I've just been writing. But but he's a drag. Loud music comes on from the apartment next door. Very aggressive metal. Matt looks at the wall separating the apartments. Oh, crap. We dolly across Matt's living room, through the wall, and into Matt's neighbor's apartment. The apartment next door where Troy, Matt's 30-year-old neighbor, a skanky, threatening asshole, stands alone in the middle of his messy shit-pile apartment, shaking his head to the music. We immediately dolly back to Matt's apartment. Matt is still on the phone with Charlie. Is that your neighbor? I hate that guy. If I was somebody else, man, I would do something. You know, I really would. If I was somebody else, I'd have mechanical kangaroo feet so I could jump over buildings. <laughs> you see, I still don't see how that would be an asset, not just an inconvenience when you're buying shoes. After <laughs> <laughs> the hallway, moments later, Matt stands staring at his neighbor's door as music blasts from the other side. He starts to knock, rethinks, stops, repeats. Suddenly the door opens, startling Matt. Troy is there on his way out with a bag of trash. He glares at Matt, who is immediately intimidated. What? Uh, some storm, huh? Have you ever seen so much lightning? Yeah, me neither. Um, what? <laughs> yeah, I have to go out. Um, I know, in this, you're right, it's crazy. Uh, I, I actually took a, a key home from work. It's a long story. Well, I'm the manager. I mean, it doesn't matter. But anyway, I, I was hoping to get some stuff done later, so I was wondering if you could, you know, uh, listen to your music as loud as you want now. You know, just totally crank it up, you know, and like, ah, screw everybody. And then, uh, you know, in about an hour, just turn it way, way down, you know. Because on average, it would still be loud all night. No. No? That's it? That's, that's all you're going to say? Just no? Troy leans in threateningly. Yeah. <laughs> are we done? We are totally done. Thank you. turns and walks off. Interior of the copy store later that night. A few customers are present using computers, the self-service copier, etc. Charlie's at the counter reading an issue of Matt's graphic novel, Galaxy Fighters. As Matt enters, soaking wet, there's a flash of lightning followed by a boom of thunder. Matt shakes himself off as Jinmopa, 35, ethnic, envious of Matt's position, comes over. So, you took the key home. Yes, <laughs> yes, Jinmopa, I did. I have never taken the key home. I know, you're amazing that way. And yet. And uh, they chose me to be manager. That's right. The guy who took the key home was chosen over the guy who never has. And you're going to have to deal with that, Jim Opa, because we cannot keep having this discussion. It distracts from the work. I have never even taken the key part of the way home. <laughs> Jim Opa walks off as Charlie comes over. Matt crosses behind the counter, putting the key in a drawer. He then moves to the large photocopier where he puts his knapsack down. He takes out his storyboards and puts a page in the copier, all over the following. Man. Chancellor Brock is out of his mind in this issue. The way he enslaves the hill people of Zortan then uses them for food. How do you think of this stuff? I wrote that when I was hungry. And, and we, that guy is fearless. How we fought with that weird chicken thing in that bar? He is unafraid. The opposite of chicken. Matt has now placed his storyboard on a photocopier. We're close on Matt's face. A single drop of rainwater slides down his nose and rests at the tip. There it stands, gathering strength, until finally it falls. We follow the drop down, 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 until splat, it hits the keypad, seeping into the open spaces between the buttons. We cut to the interior of the photocopier. Inside the copier, directly below the keypad, multicolored wires shoot in every direction. The water drop now rests on one of them, hanging precariously over a circuit board. Back in the copy store, Matt presses a few buttons. Close on the photocopier. The display window reads, warming up. Hey, Jenna's here. Jenna, a beautiful girl about Matt's age, stands at the counter waiting for service. Matt looks at her in love. She is so beautiful. There's no point in there even being any other girls. She's been coming in for weeks. You should ask her out. I will. One day. When it's right. <laughs> Jenna calls over. Hey, Matt, are you open? Maybe even now. Hi, Jenna. Yes, totally open. Open to anything. I mean, uh, business-wise, not sexually. <laughs> I, I mean, not, I'm not open to trying to... Uh, will you excuse me for a second? What is wrong with me? It's like my mouth just says things without checking with anyone. You wait on it. We cut to exterior of the city street. Rain pours down. A bolt of lightning shoots from the sky and hits a power transformer on a utility pole. The, transpo the transformer explodes. A surge of crackling electricity shoots down the power line, racing into the night. We follow the sparkling electrical surge as it hits another line, then another, and finally flies down a power line into the copy store, where, inside the wall, the spark runs up the wiring, zaps the fuse, bo fuse box, then continues onto an outlet where three prongs of a power cord come through the wall. 
the electricity hits the prongs and races up the power cord into the photocopier just as the drop of water we saw previously hanging on a wire slowly falls onto the circuit board. There it is met by the bolt of electricity and kablam! Sparks explode. The photocopier goes crazy, making loud, sizzling, popping sounds and flashing its copier light over and over. Matt races to the power cord and grabs it. Zzzt. He gets a shock and jumps back. Interior of the castle. Lieutenant Reed and Chancellor Brock, still waiting, shield their eyes from the flashing light of the copier. Angle on the galaxy transporter device. It too is illuminated by the light. Suddenly it comes to life, humming loudly. Reed and Brock look at it, concerned. We now notice a digital timer on the device. It lights up and begins counting down. Two, two hours, one hour, 59. Matt grabs a ream of paper and uses it to hit the top of the copier's plug, finally pushing it out from the wall. The copier goes quiet. Charlie and Jinmopa come over. Whoa, what was that? I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't use this machine for a while. Matt looks at Jinmopa, who smiles. Oh, yeah, if you were a manager, there never would have been an electrical store. <laughs> we're interior of Matt's bedroom. The clock radio reads 110. Next to it sits Matt's storyboards in a neat stack. Unnoticed by him, a light glows from within them. Matt, fully dressed, lies on his bed, bored, watching the news. A weatherman, obviously outside in the storm, is reporting. Yeah, yeah, possibly the worst storm we have had in years. There's so much wind, I can't even stand. I'm sort of just lying here in this puddle. <laughs> <laughs> Matt turns the channel. The commercial is on. Hi, guys. I'm Amber. Are you alone tonight? Do you want company? He picks up the remote to change the channel. Suddenly, bam, out of nowhere, a body falls from the ceiling, landing on top of Matt, flattening him and breaking his bed. Matt and the body lie still a moment as the dust settles. Then slowly, Matt starts to disentangle himself. The body gets up and stands. We now see that it is Chancellor Gartold Brock, the evil character from Matt's graphic novel. Brock wears the same leather armor we saw him in previously. The two stare at each other. Matt is speechless. Brock, as always, is calm. And you are? Oh, oh my god, you're from my... Bam! Again, Matt is flattened as another body drops on him. That was fantastic, Reed. You should have seen your face. <laughs> Slowly, Matt rises. He looks up at the ceiling, which isn't a ceiling anymore, but a swirling mass of clouds, wind, and light quickly forms a cyclone, spinning up and up as the porthole it formed becomes smaller and smaller until finally it is gone and only the normal ceiling remains. Matt looks at the newest arrival. It is the good and just Lieutenant Thalamus Reed, also dressed as previously. Where am I? What cursed land is this? <laughs> it's, it's my apartment. You're in my apartment. How great would it be if another body fell on you right now? <laughs> <laughs> we fade out end of Act 1. In Act 2, we're in Matt's bedroom a short time later. The clock radio now reads 1.45. Reed stands in Matt's interlocked hands as Matt attempts to hoist him up and back into the ceiling from whence he came. Uh, one, two, three! Matt lifts as high as he can, slamming Reed's head into the ceiling. God. Brock watches from nearby. Keep going. You're making real progress. <laughs> Reed climbs down. If only we had a device that could propel me into the ceiling at a high rate of speed, like a Trilodian-powered cannon. Oh my god, this can't be happening. How is this happening? I could make one. All I need is wheatgrass, the dung of an oxen, and seven yards of sheep metal. And a bucket of Trilodian. There's no such thing as Trilodian. I made it up. I made it all up. Even the bucket? No, not the bucket. Those are real. Oh, thank God. At least we have buckets. Um, now, let's get back to that made-it-up thing you keep mentioning. So you created us, is that correct? Yes. I have so many questions. Like, why did I behead Princess Scarscar when I so enjoyed bedding her? Well, you, you're pure evil. Yeah, but she was pretty fun. So it was you who killed the great princess and left her people to fight alone against the vicious clams of Dra. Yeah, uh, the vicious clams of Dra. By the way, that's that's not my best word. <laughs> I swore that I would avenge her death, Brock, and avenge it I shall. I think I speak for everyone in the room when I say, "Why don't you dial it down a notch?" <laughs> <laughs> As Brock turns to Matt, Reed picks up a table lamp and breaks it over Brock's head. What Brock you... crumbles to the ground. Are you crazy? What are you doing? Avenging her death. Stop. What? Yeah, of course it hurt. I told you, you guys are in a different world now. Where you can feel things and break lamps that I like. You can't afford to just run out in her place. Sorry. Just... Creator. <laughs> right, just don't do it again. And call me Matt. Matt Farland. Loud music comes on from Matt's neighbor. 
What is that noise? Are we under attack, Matt Farlin? No. It... <laughs> you you need to stay calm. It's my neighbor. He plays loud music. No, I don't like that at all. Brock heads off, exiting the bedroom. Where are you going? You can't walk around. Matt starts to follow Brock. Reed stops him. Wait. Reed drops to one knee, taking Matt's hand. I pledge to you. What are you, what are you, what are you doing? Pledging to you. <laughs> From this day forward, my creator, you will have my absolute obedience. This isn't necessary. Your friends shall be my friends. Your enemies shall rue the day. I really need to check on Brock, and he's right. Maybe you do need to dial it down a little. We cut to interior of Troy's apartment. Matt's neighbor Troy is again standing in the middle of his apartment, listening to his music. Suddenly, his door is violently kicked open. Troy looks up scared as Brock enters. Hello. <laughs> who, 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 are, who are you? I am Chancellor Gartold Brock from the planet Eucrates. <laughs> Troy, from DC. <laughs> Hello, Troy from DC. Brock calmly silences the stereo, then takes a step toward Troy, who backs up. Don't be afraid. I am your friend. Hello. <laughs> Troy continues backing up. Oh, look. Troy from D.C. has something on his ear. I'll get it for you. <laughs> Don't touch my ear, man. No, no, of course not. Suddenly Brock is on him, holding him still as he presses his lips to Troy's ear and begins sucking. <laughs> Troy reacts right <laughs> After a moment, Brock pulls back, frustrated. Nothing! Brock tries again. Troy winces, trying to pull away. What the hell, man? Matt enters, he grabs Brock and pulls him off Troy. Ah, uh -huh, stop that! Let him go! What, what, what's he doing? He's trying to suck your brains out of your ear. What? Wait, 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 can he do that? I don't know. I hope not. <laughs> but we, we do not eat people's brains here. Do you understand? Brock doesn't respond and looks moby. Brock? Yes. Troy is freaked out. <laughs> he, he, he eats people's... Matt turns on Troy, stepping up as he's always wished he could. Look, just turn your music down. Okay, Troy? Okay, okay, okay yeah, okay. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Was that so hard? Matt and Brock head for the door. Brock turns back to Troy. I may return later and kill you anyway. Okay, you know what? Off. Just just turn the music off. <laughs> we cut to Matt's living room the next morning. Matt, still dressed from the night before, is crashed out on the sofa. The doorbell rings. Matt wakes, groggily walks to the door and opens it. A policeman stands next to Reed, who is dressed as previously, but now looks ragged. Yeah, you Matt Farland creator? Uh, just, just Matt Farland, yes. <laughs> this man got himself into a little trouble last night. He claims to live here. Yeah, I can explain everything, officer. See, he's retarded. Uh, I, I know there's a, a nicer word for it, but I just, I just woke up. Uh, uh, imbecile? Uh, no, moron! All nice words. Just keep an eye on him and have a nice day. The policeman exits. Reed comes inside and Matt closes the door. Oh, God, the police? What did you do? I, uh, I went out last night to explore this new world. It didn't go well. But I'm back now, so that's good. Reed looks away, clearly upset. Did something happen you want to talk about? No. Yes. A man urinated on me. <laughs> oh, well, you, you found it unpleasant, so that's good. I heard shouts coming from a building and ran inside to help because I like helping a lot. I cannot not help. I know. And inside there were men cheering as another man, lying in a pit of mud, was being attacked by two half-naked women trying to suffocate himself with their enormous muddy breasts. <laughs> and then you left and found someone who needed help? Well, I jumped in to save him, but three large males descended on me. One kicked me hard in a place that heretofore had only brought me pleasure, but <laughs> now made me shriek and vomit. <laughs> then whimper, groan, shriek some more, and then vomit again. And then twitch, yeah, I get, I get curse, it. weep, I... and dry heat. <laughs> then I was thrown into the street where I heard the sound of a zipper. And... Yeah, All right, why don't you just take a shower while I make coffee, and then we'll figure out how to get you guys back from where you came from. Where's Brock, anyway? Isn't he with you? No. He's evil. We don't do a lot together socially. <laughs> <laughs> Reed crosses to the bathroom. Matt heads into the kitchen area, stopping when he sees Brock, his back to us, standing over the sink, eating something with a spoon out of a bowl. He's clearly enjoying it. Mm, mm, oh, yeah. Mm, yes. Mm. What, what are you doing? Brock freezes and turns around. Nothing. <laughs> You're eating something. No, I'm not. I saw you chewing. Brock swallows. Oh, no, you didn't. Matt crosses to the sink and picks up the bowl. Is this... brains? No. No, it's, uh, it's uh, ice cream. Yeah, you caught me. I was chewing ice cream. Yum. It's not cold. 
And it's grey. Okay, they're brains. I tried not to, I swear I did. I didn't really. But they're so good, I love them. <laughs> Can I have that? No, you cannot run around eat. Where did you... Oh, no. My neighbor? Is this... Troy's? Charlie knocks on the door as he enters. There you are. Charlie crosses to Matt. Brock stands between them. You didn't come to work. That's not like you. Yeah, I've been busy. With what? Because you've always been telling me work's important. Uh, have you not noticed that there's a guy here wearing body armor and a cape? Matt gestures to Brock. Charlie looks at Brock and back to Matt. Yes. How's it going? That's <laughs> good an adjustment. Well, thank you for asking. Yeah, that's Chancellor Gartold Brock, Charlie. He's here, and I think he just ate Troy's brains. Well, that's why I'm late to work. Do you see what a good excuse that is? First of all, I've had good excuses, too, and you've still gotten mad. Also, I saw Troy downstairs, so he definitely has his brains. Oh, really? Matt looks at Brock for an explanation. Right. The cow brains. <laughs> I got them from a butcher. I didn't want to tell you because it's so humiliating. They're not even warm. Brock takes the bowl from Matt and moves off. Troy said a friend of yours tried to kill him. Now that I'm here, I'm thinking he was probably this guy. Yeah, that's Brock, Charlie, and Lieutenant Reed's here, too. He's in my shower. Someone peed on him last night. It's not time. <laughs> <laughs> they fell through some kind of porthole. Wow, that's intense. You believe me? I don't know. I won't if you're going to make me feel bad about it. No, no. I mean, no, it's just, you know, it's a big thing. We know about 1% of what's really going on now. The government, oil companies, other dimensions, they're all doing things you wouldn't believe. Sometimes someone gets sloppy, and we find out. In this case, it was another dimension, which I think is cool. Bam, with all the force of the previous arrivals, a new body falls from the sky, this time landing on Charlie. The newest arrival is a beautiful, sexy young woman dressed in graphic novel warrior attire. Ah, there's someone from another dimension on me! Get off! Get off! Oh, she's hot. Wait, don't go. Fruit girl. Who? She delivered a bowl of fruit to Brock and Reed right before they started fighting. Where am I? In his apartment. And there are a lot of rooms. <laughs> we cut to Matt's bedroom. Matt enters with Charlie in tow. That chick is smoking. Matt crosses to his desk and picks up his storyboards and looks through them. She's in the story I'm working on. All she does is deliver a bowl of fruit. And later she was going to come back as an assassin. Maybe we shouldn't tell her that. No. Unless we need an assassin. <laughs> Which I don't think we do. <laughs> Check this out. She's not there? Yeah, neither is Brock or Reed. They're all gone. We're close on the storyboards. In each frame are the empty sets, devoid of any characters. Back look, to the scene. Look, look, the galaxy transporter is on. I didn't draw it on. It's sucking people into this world. He turns the page. Look at this. Close on the storyboards, we see a hideously terrifying alien creature. What if this troglomite comes through? It eats human flesh and has an insect-like brain that can't be reasoned with. Then we do not want it here. I have to destroy the transporter device and close the porthole. Matt starts furiously drawing on his storyboards. But, but that, that might be their only way back. We'll have to find another way. What if they're stuck here forever? Matt? No, you may not date Fruit Girl. Fade out into that too. Fade in, Matt's bedroom, Chiron one week later. Matt is in bed sleeping. Fruit Girl, still in her same outfit, enters, pulls the covers back, slips into bed next to Matt and starts kissing him. Half asleep, Matt responds. As things get more heated, he suddenly bolts up. Oh, wait, what are you doing? We're out of fruit. <laughs> so what? You were gonna seduce me so I'd buy you fruit? Who am I, Matt? Fruit girl. <laughs> One line. I bring you fruit. It's all that I know about myself. <laughs> that, and based on my outfit, I have a very cavalier attitude about sex. <laughs> a lot of women in graphic novels draw like that. Why? Why? Well, uh, some people say it's because that they're mostly written by guys. Guys who, you know... Can't meet women they want to have sex with and so draw them instead? It's a theory. <laughs> Fine, let's do it, and then get me some fruit. No, no, no. no. Matt gets out of bed. That would be completely wrong. Fun for a few minutes. Oh, cold, yes. But, and I, I, I'd make sure that you had fun, too. Don't worry about that. You're not worried about that, which would make it even more fun. All right, I have to go before something fun happens. Matt heads into the living room. Fruit Girl follows. We reset to the living room continuous. Matt enters with Fruit Girl in tow. Reed is on the couch watching television. Well, maybe, unlike Fruit, you're overthinking things. Matt stops and turns to her. No, no, in this world, sex comes from real connection between people. It's not something women do just to get stuff. We angle on the television. In bed, a beautiful woman admires a ring on her finger as she snuggles up to a man. 
Oh, honey, I love my new diamonds. As she starts to kiss him, Matt picks up the remote and changes the channel. Another beautiful woman, this one holding an appliance, cozies up to a man. Oh, sweetie, I'd love for my coffee maker. <laughs> As this couple starts to kiss, the channel again changes. A third beautiful woman stands at a stove cooking. A man comes up and puts his arms around her. Oh, darling, I love my new all-clad stainless steel aluminum coarse skillets and fun cookware. As they kiss, the TV is turned off. Back to the scene, Matt is holding the remote. Okay, that... Everything you see on that box takes place on another planet. <laughs> I've been watching television for a week. I see the truth. I'm fat. My teeth are ugly. My feet are so rough, no one will ever want me. <laughs> Luckily, there are products available that can help. But I must act now. <laughs> no, no, I am not buying you products. And I'm not buying you more fruit. Rock enters from the front door. Good, you're awake. Uh, what time are you coming home tonight? I need you to take me sheet shopping. No, no, I'm not buying anything for anyone. Look, we have to accept that you all might be here for a while. Which is why I need sheets, no? <laughs> you can't just hang out and expect me to buy you things. You have to get out in the world in a way that's not weird. Just, just learn how it works. Like the peach tree learns how to grow toward the sun. Okay, like that. Yeah. Or, or learn that you can't just run around saving people. Or move into an apartment because you scared away the previous tenant. I vanquished Troy and rightfully took possession of all that was his. <laughs> if he had women, I wouldn't even be here talking to you right now. What he has is a landlord, and, and uh, to pay him, you're going to need a job. You all are. A job? What can I do? Who will hire someone so fat? <laughs> I was reading uh, about these things called HMOs that people give money so to so they'll be taken care of when they're sick. Only then, when they do get sick, they're told they're not eligible and sent home to die. Marvellous. I could run one of those. <laughs> Just smaller. Think smaller and less horrible. We're interior of the copy store that morning. Brock, Reed, and Fruit Girl, all for the first time dressed in normal clothes, stand around a photocopier as Matt shows them how to use it. Brock presses a button and the machine begins making a copy. Good, good. You see how simple? Now, who remembers what collating is? The collecting or arranging of pages, pages in that proper order. Excellent. And, and what's the upcharge for collating? No one answers. Finally, Brock raises his hand. Brock. I once forced a man to eat his own brother. And not his smallest brother, either. <laughs> See, that's an answer to a different question. Like, have you ever forced a man to eat his own brother? My point is, this Xerox thing. Photocopying. Xerox is the trademark name of one of several companies that manufactures photocopy equipment. Drew <laughs> Carroll smiles and winks at Matt. Brilliant. Whatever it is, it and I may not be a perfect fit. It is difficult to accept that this is all our creator does. How can one who gave our life such purpose live his own with so little? I'm also the manager. Perhaps you are the one who must journey into the world. Do you see how I use your own words to haunt you? Everything is a weapon! <laughs> hey, Matt. Jenna is standing across the room at the counter. Startled, Matt turns to her. Jenna, hey! Hi! These are, these are my friends, Brock, Reed, and Fruit. Toast. <laughs> fruit to toast? Like the sweetener? <laughs> of course not. That's not even a name. I mean, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure somewhere, some boy or girl, you know, running around, go, fructose, or, you know, glucose, but not here. No. Charlie, Jamopa? <clears throat> Charlie and Jamopa working across the room, look up. We're laminating, and there's a bubble. There is a bubble. Uh, can, <laughs> can one of you help Jenna? Uh, why don't you ask one of your friends that you're so recklessly given jobs to? <laughs> Thank you. Matt turns back to Brock, Reed, and Fruit Girls. Jinwopa continues. It is an abuse of power. They ignore him. You like that girl, don't you? Jenna? You must go to her. Show her the passion that burns within you. Take her with your man sword. <laughs> All right, guys, thank you. This is so helpful. You are weak. And you once made a man eat his own brother, so let's not get judgmental. Our creator cannot be weak. He's right, Matt. Weak fruit never ripens. Oh, I can't wait to learn more stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Who do you want to be, Matt Farling? A man of action or a man of fear? A man who only makes copies of the lives of others or a man who lives his own? A man who... Skip that. Do you want to be you or someone who has frequent and vigorous sex? Okay, okay. everyone shut up. Jenna? Yes? Hi, earlier what I wanted to say, uh, what 
I've been wanting to say, we should go out sometime, you and me. And let's just do it. Why not, right? I can't. I, neither can I. Let's just keep it professional. <laughs> it's just, I, I've kind of got a boyfriend. Oh, same here. Matt? Jenna <laughs> <laughs> moves away from Charlie and gestures for Matt to come over. He does, leaving the group behind. I can't now, because there's kind of this guy, but I'm glad you asked. A moment. She smiles at him and then is off. Matt smiles, turns back to the group, pleased with himself. She's glad I asked. I could hunt this fellow down and hurt him so badly the girl would find him impossible to look at. If you buy me sheets. No. Bath towels. No. Look, nobody do anything. This was great. It really was. But it's my life, and I don't want your help. You know, do you all understand? The group is quiet for a moment, and then... But I like to help. I can't... Not. Just, just try. Now, come on. I'll teach you how to the, uh, about the elixir that makes all this possible. Toner? The lifeblood of the photocopier? I think you're ready. Matt and Fruit Girl walk off. Reed turns to Brock. We will mold him into a creator of whom we can be proud. Just so you know, I look at this as a temporary situation until I can destroy you, conquer this world, and enslave all its inhabitants. So wait, I, I, I saw something on the television that would be helpful here. Uh, okay, what was it? Um, oh, yes. You are a dick. <laughs> <laughs> we fade out of the end. That was Galaxy Fighters. That's our show for this month. If you're enjoying the podcast, you should know that Maximum Fun is a member-supported network, and the best way to support Dead Pilot Society is to become a member of Maximum Fun, which you can do at MaximumFun.org slash donate. The Max Fun Drive is coming up in March. Become a member. You'll get some cool bonus stuff. Next month, we're going to have a TV version of the movie Big, written by Mike Royce and Kevin Beagle. It's so great that we've done it twice. Two different incredible casts. Become a member, and you'll get to hear both. We have another cool little bonus for you, too. Thank you to my co-host, Ben Blacker, to all of our performers. Look for their names in the show notes. Thanks to Arts and Sciences, Ethan Walter, Ted Leo, and Courtney Hyde. Please subscribe on Maximum Fun or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts so you won't miss an episode. And please leave us a rating. That really helps. So uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Dead Pilots Pod. We're on Facebook and Instagram at Dead Pilot Society. Until next month, I'm Andrew Reich. Thanks so much for listening. MaximumFun.org. Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.